Is Wonder Woman 1984 a feminist film? And is Walking in Heels a superpower? These questions and more on this week's Girls on Film. You need to be a literal Amazon to wear high heels every day to work. I think that makes sense. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome to Girls on Film. I'm Anna Smith and I hope you're doing okay. Thank you for joining us. Today, I'm speaking to critics Helen O'Hara and Holly Tarquini for a deep dive into the film Wonder Woman 1984, and we'll be having a heated debate. Helen O'Hara is editor-at-large of Empire magazine and a key figure on the Empire podcast. She also writes for The Telegraph, Grazia and Stylist, and she's now publishing her first book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Hollywood, on February 18th, 2021. Holly Tarquini is a former producer and director and now Film Bath's executive director. In 2014, she founded the F Rating, which is a feminist film rating highlighting films directed and or written by women. Well, welcome to you both. Holly, first you, how are you and how is F Rated? Yeah, I'm doing very well. And the F rating is, yeah, scooching along. It's now being used by more than 90 organisations around the world to highlight their programme and films that are directed and or written by women. And we had a, a very successful online film festival back in November where 55% of the programme was F rated and a physical film festival in December, which was, it felt so miraculous. We just like squeezed it in in between lockdowns um, and yeah, 60% of that was F-rated. Fantastic, congratulations. And Helen, um, congratulations to you on your book, Women Versus Hollywood. How's it all going? Are you in a flurry of press at the moment? Yeah, I've been like doing interviews, which, and you know, usually when I say that, I'm interviewing people. So it's a bit weird to be interviewed, but um, but no, it's been it's been really, really good. People have been very kind about it so far. And I'm just really happy not to have to write it anymore because it, it had to be sort of pulled out of my hands like I would have just kept, you know, researching and twiddling with it forever. So it was literally ripped away from me. And, and in retrospect, I'm kind of glad. So there is a, like an end and it's there and exists as a thing. Well, we're going to be talking about Wonder Woman 1984. But first, we want to talk a little bit more about the book. Um, as you know, I've loved it. I've read it. I've enjoyed it. I've got a quote on the back. Thank you for that. Um, Tell us more, tell the listeners more about the book and what they can expect. Well, it's basically an attempt, uh, a completely ridiculous, vainglorious attempt to try and sum up some of the forces that sort of act on women in Hollywood and try to explain where things went wrong and how we can hopefully make things right. Because in the early days, there were women in Hollywood. Now, they weren't a majority, but there were women directing and owning their own studios and producing and all sorts of things. I mean, by one um, estimate I read, they were 50% of screenwriters in the silent era. And they're not anywhere near 50% of screenwriters now. So what happened? Um, 
and I started trying to, to, to sort of investigate that and started trying to go kind of era by era and look how women, some of the forces acting in each era. So how the studio contract system worked, how censorship had an effect. And I've learned a lot. Like I didn't know one of the big effects of censorship was racist, really. It was one of the big forces acting to stop black women in particular but also like Chinese American women from getting any roles at all because they weren't allowed to act opposite white male leads and they weren't going to cast anybody else but white male leads. So they were kind of left with nothing to do. So, you know, I was trying to kind of look at some of these things and the auteur theory, which I think is inherently a bit dodgy as far as women go, um, or certainly the way it's used and the way it's talked about, and, and try and then look at the present day and, and what what's changing, I hope, and what's still a problem unfortunately. You mentioned a couple of things there that surprised you to learn. Was there anything else in your research that really shocked you? Some of the statistics were shocking. So there's um, the statistic about women uh, directors between 1949 and 1979 directed something like 0.019% of studio films. And I knew it was bad. I expected bad. I didn't expect a zero after the one. And it was, that was a total of something like, I think, 14 films by seven female directors. You know, it's That's it's not great. Extraordinarily shocking. Isn't um, it bad? Yeah. Extraordinarily shocking. Now, you mentioned the future and how things mm. are moving on. What reasons do you think we have to be hopeful and positive in the current day about the future? I mean, yeah, positivity is quite hard at the moment, let's be honest. But, um, but no, I think it is... I am positive overall because I think people are now talking about it very openly. Podcasts like this exist, you know. People are raising a fuss on Twitter. F rating exists. You know, you know, these are the things that draw attention to the inequalities and make people realize that there's something wrong and more importantly, make it impossible for anybody to say I don't think it's an issue. Because we literally have the receipts now. You know, we have the numbers and we're all sharing them across social media and we're all talking about them and writing about them. And that has to gradually have an effect. And I think things like Wonder Woman are showing that, you know, it does have an effect, which we'll get onto, I'm sure, in a minute. Excellent. I love that. Holly, I'm seeing you nodding and smiling here on Zoom as I look at you. And I know that you've had a chance to skim through the book because you've only just received it. But do you have any questions or comments for Helen about it? So I, the book is absolutely fantastic. And I loved how readable it was as well. So it's not in the least bit a kind of, academic tone is it? it's very page turner literally not qualified to be academic so <laughs> <laughs> but it is i i much i enjoy a journalistic style much more than a kind of a, a hardcore academic. but there were things that i wanted to ask you so uh, following what you were saying about 50 there was a point where 50 percent of the screenwriters were women um do you can you see a time wh what was the best time for female directors when were they proportionately the most i mean probably either now or the silent era so there was a moment in the silent era where they actively looked for women and they actively sort of put them front and center and made a big deal about the fact that they had female filmmakers because this was seen as a sort of a respectability thing this was a way of showing you were you know safe and non-porny because of course there were slightly dodgy kind of peep shows at the same time um so that wouldn't have been terrible, but even then it was 
led very much by one studio, by Universal at the time, and then other studios had a smattering of female filmmakers. And then, of course, there were independents who basically, you didn't need very much to make a silent movie. You know, you if you had a sort of sunny warehouse and a camera and some editing equipment, you were kind of there. So there were women all over the country sort of scattered about with their own little independent production companies. Um, but then when film was kind of industrialized and studioized, then that kind of fell away. So, so yeah, the silent era was better, or the early silent era, at least by the by the mid nineteen twenties. Forget about it; they were all gone pretty much. Um, but really, we are looking at now being the time with real opportunities, and that's again that's that's cause for hope. That's cause for you know celebration. Yeah, even though the figures are still still terrible. Yeah, still really, really, yeah, quite poor. There is a long way to go, but I have to agree with Holly on the accessible style of this book because it's so entertaining. I think I said in my quote, it's, it's a real page turner. It's just really gripping and fun. And I love your accessible style. Helen, who are you hoping that this book will reach? I think realistically, I'm, I'm slightly preaching to the choir. I think it'll mostly be women who are interested in this reading it. Um, and I hope it will give them some ammunition to sort of say, look, there is a problem and here's why. And this is why we're making an issue of this and this is why it matters. I would like to think it will open some minds or change some minds as well. I don't know if that's realistic in the modern world, you know, where we're all very kind of entrenched in our little um, little tribes. But, but I would like to hope that somebody will pick it up sort of semi-accidentally and maybe get interested. Um, but yeah, if all it does is sort of preach to the choir and, and give them some ammunition, then I'll be very happy. And it's always the issue, isn't it? It's like, so we screen amazing documentaries about climate change, about feminism, about Palestine, about all kinds of issues. And you know that the people that are going to come to those already believe whatever it is. That the doc- but all, that's why I think films like Wonder Woman have the opportunity to change the story, like you say in your book, that there is this fantastic opportunity for film to change what's going on culturally, whereas it's quite difficult to change a whole culture to become more equal. If you change the stories that we see on screen so that we just assume that that's what we're like as human beings, it can be quite easy. Some days my childhood feels so very far away. And others? I can almost see it. The magical land of my youth. Like a beautiful dream of when the whole world felt like a promise and the lessons that lay ahead yet unseen. Looking back, I wish I'd listened. Wish I'd watched more closely and understood. But sometimes you can't see what you're learning until you come out the other side. Well, that leads me very nicely to our main segment today. Thank you both for talking about that lovely book and we'll give uh, the listeners more information about how to get that at the end. But our big question today is, Wonder Woman 1984, a feminist movie? And we may want to compare it to the first film, Um, Obviously, Wonder Woman 1984, the sequel, came out in December in cinemas and it's now available, because of the pandemic, quite early on premium video on demand. Now, we're going to talk about if it's feminist um, and there will be moderate spoilers. So if you want to go watch the film first and come back, then please do. Um, 
But first, I want us all to say broadly what we thought of it as entertainment, because it's had very different reactions from different people. I think it's 60% critic rating on um, Rotten Tomatoes and 74% audience. But I've certainly found when I reviewed it on BBC News Film Review, I had some people going, I absolutely, you know, people emailing, tweeting me, saying, I love this film, it's fantastic. Other people, quite the opposite. So it's had really, really different reactions. I'll start with me, and then I'm going to come to you guys. You know what I think, but I'm just going to pray see it. Um, so I had pretty minimal expectations and I was lucky enough to see it on the big screen, which I do think needs to be taken into consideration because it was amazing in the IMAX. But for me, as someone that loves 80s, 90s movies, it captured the vibe of that and watching it was a really emotional and nostalgic experience. I thought the big screen spectacle was very impressive. The action, for me, was more emotionally involving than the first film. I loved Kristen Wiig's Barbara and I thought the costumes served the story brilliantly. Hans Zimmer's score was excellent. I will admit the plot was often preposterous and I had some issues which we will come to on the feminist side, but I was still swept away by its kind of breezy nostalgia and positive spirit. And, and, and as I came out, I saw Helen and I said, what did you think? And she was like, hmm. So Helen, would you like to elaborate more on what you thought? Yeah. So, I mean, again, lucky enough to see it on the big screen like yourself. Um, I went in with really high expectations. So that may be the principal difference between us. I was on set. I've been hyped about this for two years uh, since then, if not three, since the first one came out. And I think I was disappointed that the plot wasn't a little bit tighter. I, I have a general suspicion of all superhero movies with two bad guys. I think it is exceptionally rare to do justice by both bad guys and your hero. And it is almost impossible if the story is also essentially an origin story of one or more of those bad guys. So, you know, that was, that meant there was a lot of time that wasn't spent with Diana that I kind of wanted to spend with her. I felt like in the first film, you know, you're setting her up and you have to introduce all these new people in this world to her. This is the time when you really dial down on her character. And and there is that, there is that there, but I wanted more. Um, so yeah, so I was, a, I was a little bit disappointed in, in really the story overall. And I thought it was a film which tried very hard to hit big issues and, and talk about big themes and big ideas, but it sometimes did that at the expense of the elegance of the storytelling and, and the centrality of its hero. Um, so that was my main issue with it. But it's still, I mean, I 100% agree with, like, it looks incredible, it sounds incredible, it's beautifully made. It just didn't quite give me the hit I wanted. Thank you, Helen. Now, Holly, you saw this on the small screen for the first time, is that right? Or did you see you go and see it in the cinema? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so tell so me I went to see it at the cinema. I didn't see it at an IMAX, so slightly smaller screen, but it was in the cinema. And it was in the cinema again in that little tiny window of when we could go back to the cinema. Um, and my expectations were high. And I do think it's so often the case with films, isn't it, is, is your reaction to them vary depending on how you're feeling when you go in has as much to do with what you think of the film as anything. But I loved the first one so much on such a visceral level. So the first one, I felt as though it was the film that my eight-year-old self really needed. And as I was watching it, I felt as though I was eight years old watching and going, yes, of course we all fight and we're strong and we're powerful and we can fly and we can shoot three arrows simultaneously and we are amazing and funny and witty and kind. And it 
it, yeah, I was very, very emotional about the first one. I've seen it quite a few times. You will train her harder than any Amazon before her. Five times harder. Ten times harder. Until she is better than even you. But she must never know the truth about what she is or how she came to be. And so I was incredibly disappointed by this one. It is obviously, you know, really brilliantly polished and well-made. I felt as though there was a team of kind of overweight American straight white old men sitting in a boardroom going, oh no, we can't have the Amazons looking strong and being actual fighters. What we're going to have is all the, have them as models and they're going to gazelle-like jump and look pretty. And just, I, I hated so much of it. Uh, and I think that was because I was so, so disappointed by it. I think there are there are multiple, there are so many ways that it could have been so much better. So, for example, the whole kind of, sorry, I'm going into your feminist bit a bit early. <laughs> but the whole um, Barbara Minerva character um, being not the most loved person in the office, even though she's obviously the kindest, the sweetest, the most fun, the person that would bring you cake, would obviously be popular in the office, but she can't be because she wears glasses and can't walk in heels. And you think that could have been really played on. It didn't feel as though there was that kind of feminist play of going, yeah, because, you know, the patriarchal soup in which we swim meant that she was like that. And then it seemed to miss another trick in okay, she wishes to be like Diana, who's, you know, goddess-like model beauty. So she gets the model-like beauty because she takes her glasses off and can walk in heels and wear a tight dress. But, but there was, they didn't feel as though there was any irony there. So there was a whole play to be had there that I felt was missed about in the 80s, what we had as feminism was girl power and learning to pole dance. And that, you know, we were empowered because, yeah, we can wear our bras out on the street and we can, you know be really highly sexual in a heteronormative way for men but that's empowering to us and it didn't in any way kind of reference that that's what was going on in the 80s so it just to me sorry and I know you want to say loads but I felt as though it fell down on so so many points well, it's so interesting because I did think it was funny and ironic and I did think I agree with everything you're saying there and it could have definitely gone further. It could have certainly gone further in that way. But I do still feel that it raised a few laughs and acknowledged the ridiculousness and the cliche element of that premise. And the fact that she's going, oh, look, um, isn't this amazing? That once she becomes popular, um, you know, magically popular, she's going, oh, look, it's amazing. I, I, I actually can read properly without my glasses now. Ha, ha, ha. And, you know, and it, and it was kind of addressing those tropes in quite an amusing way. And also I thought, which I think you've alluded to, but this kind of idea of high heels being a superpower, I also thought it's a little post-post-feminist, but I thought it was really quite funny because, the, you know, the idea is, is that it was kind of, calling up these kind of tropes and saying well obviously how can an ordinary woman actually walk in the heels that the patriarchy expects her to walk in therefore it is an unrealistic thing for women to um try to have mm. and only that's... a superhero can do it <laughs> <laughs> you need to be a literal amazon to wear high heels every day to work i think that makes sense 
Um, I'm I'm kind of somewhere in between again. I think I I, I did like the uh, the Themyscira games, and I do think that's a Paddy Jenkins thing. That's something she talked about pretty early on. I'm pretty sure that comes from her, not not the man. I really hope so. Anyway, um, but I think. It, it kind of put the rest of the film a little bit into perspective because you did have that hit of Themyscira early on and that was so good to see it again. And then you wanted that to have more weight and you wanted that to play into it more. And I think maybe if you had skipped Maxwell Lord entirely and focused the film entirely on Diana and Barbara, I think that might have played better and it might have leaned into some of those ideas a bit more. I understand why they wanted someone like Maxwell Lord. I understand why they wanted to kind of explore that kind of toxic masculinity. But in that case, I wouldn't have necessarily given him the sympathetic backstory. You know, I, I would have I would have slimmed that all down. I would have probably taken out his son. I would have probably take definitely taken out the flashback at the end and just made him the bad guy. And I, if that is what you're trying to do here, then maybe that would have been the way to do it. And I know that's taking nuance out of a film, which is generally a bad thing, but... Yeah, I felt like I was... For me, the the biggest area of interest was the two women, and I loved that it had as big a role as it did. But I was equally interested in Pedro Pascal's character, and I thought it was all... Yeah, it all coexisted okay. But I, it is a fair point. But Helen, you also gave me some quotes for a piece I wrote in The Guardian, I'd like to turn to this subject now, because I know what Holly feels... In fact, this is one of the reasons I invited Holly um, to, to join us, much as I love to have her on the show anyway, because I wrote a piece in The Guardian about is um, Wonder Woman 84, the first Me Too superhero movie, because I believe that it tackles everyday sexism. And there are certain scenes, um, Helen, which you um, mentioned, and you said that you thought it made great strides forward in portraying harassment as a reality. And what I think impressed us both was, in a way... Not so much that, you know, we've seen superheroes, you know, kick rapists us and, and killers us as before, but, you know, that kind of very small, um, incremental, but but significant um, sexism and sexual harassment that, that builds up and that can really affect a woman's life without perhaps men realising. And I thought that was tackled very well in certain scenes. Um, Helen, do you want to speak to that briefly? And then I will ask Holly why, because Holly then um, commented on my piece very politely saying she disagreed. So I want to hear why she disagreed. <laughs> no, I, I know it's, you know, I don't want to make too big a deal of it, but I did think it was it was done subtly and sort of in passing, but I thought it was done well, which is that Diana goes into a party wearing a white dress and looking like a literal goddess and is just consistently hit on and harassed and she has a mission she's there to do a thing and you know she's just have these has these gnats buzzing around her head the entire time and I just thought it was a, a good representation of everyday life for a lot of especially you know young conventionally attractive women um it's that's what you have to put up with and so so little scenes like that um I thought rang truer to me than some of the big big moments in the film so Holly, did do yes, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, no, so so now that you're talking about that, what it makes me think is it's <laughs> so I'm slightly persuaded by you in thinking that what it does is say that that's also the cost of uh, that kind of beauty and you know, she is so conventionally stunningly um attractive. And that when the Kristen Wig gets that um, attraction as well, 
but she only benefits from it really so she doesn't get any of the negativity does she so again if it was do you think she does oh, I mean, she does yeah because she is i mean she's harassed before and after the transformation but she still is harassed quite badly that's what turns barbara well, one of the factors that turns Barbara so um, violent because she gets a series of men in the street catcalling her and then her first attacker has another pop and he regrets it. Yeah, and so I suppose your argument would be that, you know, it's the whole you're screwed if you do and you're screwed if you don't. You're, you're either judged to be not making enough effort and then you're bad or you're making too much effort and therefore asking for it. So there's no way of winning. So I suppose on that little element I would agree that it is a feminist film but another unforgivable item that I found with it was when she first gets harassed and Wonder Woman comes and saves her she then leaves her in the park like there's no woman in the world that having seen somebody she knows or doesn't know be harassed would then go and go okay I've punched your harasser see you later you would walk them home. You would ask them if they're... I mean, that. I, how did that get through? I think I have to say I agree with you on that one. Helen's agreeing as well. Yeah, it did stick a little bit. I just felt like, oh, they need to just rewrite that tiny moment. She goes, are you okay getting home? And then just sort of <laughs> goes off. Um, but for me, there are other elements that overcame it. And it's interesting, Holly, that you say that it's a small part of that film. But for me, I felt that throughout the film, the issue of sexual harassment, I mean, it may have loomed large in my mind because I just cottoned onto it and I found it interesting and I thought it's just not something I've seen explored. This is all relative. I'm not saying, you know, is Wonder Woman feminist in the in sort of Simone de Beauvoir terms, but is it feminist in superhero movie terms? And I was excited to see um, that, you know, this, I hadn't really seen this tackled in this way in a mainstream film that youngest children are going to see of both sexes. And I felt if you can catch them young, <laughs> it's a really good thing. And if young boys watching that get a little bit of an insight um, into what it's like to be on the receiving end of so-called chat-up lines, um, which I thought actually did happen quite frequently throughout the film, then that's that's no small deal. So the only thing with, or not the only, but uh, the, one of my problems with it and feeling that it is fundamentally overall not a feminist film and that those messages are kind of a bit too subtle is, is the whole how are women valued and that it doesn't feel if there are any kind of subtle messages about it feels too subtle and it's a superhero movie they're not known for their subtlety and kids aren't that nuanced so I think it needed to be more overt in your screwed either way if you're a woman I didn't feel as though that element of it was kind of for want of a better expression heavy-handed enough to get the message across to say look at how unfair it is boys I do think that that's my basic issue with the film is that it's trying to say a lot of different things that don't always hang together well and and sometimes if you could just choose one thing you're better off as a filmmaker. And again, you know, if anything, this is criticizing Patty Jenkins for overambition because I think she's trying to deal with a lot of big ideas and big concepts and uh, in, in, in one film and, and trying to tie it up in one story. But, you know, 
I am a very much a devotee of the of the screenwriting school of keep, keep it simple, stupid, K-I-S-S, because it tends to make for better films, especially in the superhero genre. Um, again, few exceptions. There are some films that are way overcomplicated and I love them to death, looking at you, Avengers Endgame. But, you know, generally speaking, if you can just dial it down to one thing and tell that story really well and make your characters as rich as possible, you're, you're going to be better off. And do you think that's Patty Jenkins? Because that's where I felt that there was this room full of kind of male executives. I didn't, um, and maybe that's just because I'm horribly biased. And I'm thinking, no, it wasn't her. She wanted to make a whole film about Themyscira, powerful Amazons, and what she had to make was this kind of vapid. I know uh, from talking to her for the film, so not to drop names, but like I, I covered it for Empire, so I did get to, to interview everybody. And she was emphatic in a way I thought was sincere that it was her story um you know obviously directors say lots of things on pressures but in her case I, I very much believed it and I think it is the story she wanted to tell and I think she wanted all these big ideas in it and she she came up with certainly the, the 1984 setting I mean that's nobody nobody puts that into a focus group that's not an obvious thing to do I think that is very much her I think Steve coming back is her I think they had the idea for that early on. I think they knew how he was going to come back and they knew that he wouldn't stay forever very early on. So I think at least all of that stuff goes back a long way. On the Steve coming back, right. This is There is a very interesting contradictory issue here and I'm sure everyone who's seen the film who counts himself in the least bit analytical will have spotted this. Um, so he comes back in the magically in the body of another man who presumably is unaware of the situation. Um, Diana welcomes him back. She sees only Steve, but it's still this man's body. They, it is heavily implied, have sex. Okay, where's the consent here? And not only the consent, that character isn't even named. His name is a handsome man and he's not handsome. It's really... Harsh. (laughs) And also objective, very unfair. And we shouldn't judge people by how they look or uh-huh, whatever correct. gender they are. Yep. Um, so I take, well, then don't call him handsome man. <laughs> but yes, yeah. if that was a feat, and I, I was asking, so I've got two teenage daughters and I was saying to them, if that was a woman and a female body that had been used for sex, how would we feel about that? Because I don't think we'd feel that that was okay to, to for the spirit of somebody else to take over a body and use that body sexually. How would we... They shouted me down because that's what they do. <laughs> I mean, I grew up watching Quantum Leap like a lot. So I kind of didn't, I, was, I did watch, in, in, to my, in my defense, first time I watched it, I did sort of go, huh. But I kind of rolled with it and I blame Dr. Sam Beckett um, for, for, for indoctrinating me into the idea that it's totally okay. So I'm assuming that Handsome Man's soul is in some kind of cosmic waiting room with Ziggy and Al just waiting to get back to work but but yeah it, it's it's a it's an odd moment of thoughtlessness I think for a film that is as I say if anything too thoughtful about a lot of issues and I would have liked something to kind of deal with that a little bit more because there is room for it like they do have that whole conversation in his flat they could maybe have a conversation about you know would he mind yeah, I mean, I, I still love the film. I think it is possible to love a film and have some problems with it. And, and that is one of my biggest problems with it. Um, on the feminist front, I'm going to ask you to come to some decisions here. I want both of you to tell me marks out of five as a movie 
and Mark Satterfly for feminism. Uh, Holly, go first. Mikey, Mark, so, oh, but you see, I really don't want to judge it because again, what we tend to do in feminism is judge things much more harshly than we would. So whereas we'd let men's films get away with loads and not say, well, you know, why aren't there more people of colour in this? Why didn't they have disabled people in background shots because it would have cost them nothing? Why were there no LGBT characters? And then as soon as a woman does it, they're completely slated for it because we have to represent everyone and we have to be brilliant and the best and a flawless feminist. So I, I, don't, I don't really want to judge it and give it a mark as a film. And I think it is a hugely enjoyable film that everybody should go and watch and pay as much money as possible to go and watch. So that's what I give the film out of five. For feminism, maybe a two and a half. Okay, good. And I loved your summary there. Thank you, mm. Holly. Helen, feel free not to give it a number or, or as you <laughs> no, wish. No, I 100% agree actually with everything Holly just said because I do think that there is this tendency, especially in sort of massively online feminism, to, you know, we either love something or we tear it to shreds. And I think it's really, really unhelpful. And I think we should not do that as a general rule. Um, while, yes, having the discussion, but, you know, having the discussion hopefully with some nuance. So, um, so yeah, I, I think its heart was in the right place as regards feminism. I don't think, as, we, as we've discussed, its actions are necessarily always in the right place. Um, and film-wise, I, I really enjoyed so much about it, but again, I just find it over-baked and over-complicated. So I would probably, I'm going to be a three on both. I know that's incredibly fence-city, but it is a recommendation in Empire Terms. It is over 50%. So, so yeah, I, I'll go a three on both. Well, I have loved discussing this with you both. It's been so fascinating and I love how we can differ and listen to each other's opinions and very civilised conversation. Thank you. Um, I think what we can conclude is that people should go and watch it for themselves and also come and tell us what they think. Tweet us, send us an email, send us a Facebook message. We would love to know what you think. Now, um, to wrap up, I would like to ask you both what else you're working on and where people can see your work at the moment. Holly. So very excited to, um, we're going to start an F-rated podcast. Ooh! Yeah, which I'm really looking forward to. And the premise at the moment, though it may all change because it's early days, is that we're going to look different aspects of filmmaking. So we're going to look at pre-production, production, production, post-production, distribution, exhibition. Um, And we are going to happen to talk to amazing women in the industry without ever asking them questions about what it's been like to be a woman in the industry <laughs> we may occasionally get a token man in and ask them what it's been like to be a man in the industry um so yeah that's what we're working on at the moment and it's very exciting excellent we look forward to that that's big news helen obviously book 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 anything book, else book, going book. on um yeah. well mostly i am just beavering away on the empire call face so um the empire podcast is out every friday and we also have spoiler podcasts that go up um, well, at the moment, every Monday about one division, and then every so often, as there is a big film about other big films. So, um, so yeah, you can find me on Helen L O'Hara on Twitter, and all the Empire stuff. Obviously, just Empire Magazine, Empire Podcast. Great, and we'll put all your websites and info and book info in the show notes, so people can find out where to go. Thank you, Helen and Holly. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. What did you do? Thank you.
so keen on this one. I figure uh, you are, but you know what? I'm ready to go. I think we can do better. Parachute pants? Yeah. Um... Does, it, does everybody parachute now? You can rent Wonder Woman 1984 on demand in the UK now and in some other countries. Do check your local Warner Brothers website for more details. You can buy Helen's book Women vs Hollywood from the 18th of February 2021. Girls on Film was brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archibald, audio producer Tom Wally, assistant producer Heather Dempsey, intern Eliana J, and our principal partner Peter Brewer. If you want to support us, we would love you to give us a review or go to our Patreon page, which is at patreon.com forward slash girls on film podcast. You've been listening to me, Anna Smith, and I was joined by Helen O'Hara and Holly Tarquini. See you soon and stay safe. I like those animal print. <laughs> <laughs>